Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 285, an interview with Professor Paul Robinson, author of the book, Russian Liberalism. Today we have a special guest, uh, Paul Robinson, a professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, the University of Ottawa, and author of the recently published book, Russian Liberalism. Welcome, Professor Robinson. Thank you for inviting me. Given today's Russia and the authoritarian regime of Vladimir Putin, the concept of Russian liberalism seems to be lost. Uh, but before we get into that, our listeners would be interested in what Russian liberalism is actually historically. That's actually not an easy question because, I mean, even liberalism itself is a, is a somewhat uh, uncertain concept. Uh, many political philosophers nowadays say you, you, you can't talk of liberalism, you, you can only talk of liberalisms in the plural, um, of some sort of broad family of, of doctrines which, which have something in common but you know often contradict one another so it's so modern day paleoconservatives and modern day neoconservatives sorry i mean sorry i'm getting muddled out here but but modern day social liberals right would be very different than modern day classical liberals right and and often would be in in you know, conflict with one another, and and you get similar problems, of course, in in the history of Russian liberalism. It is it is something that has evolved over time and has taken on you know multiple manifestations. So it's it's not easy to pin it down. But uh, in my book, I, I I divide it up into certain sort of types. One of which is is political conservatism. So in a Russian context political conservatism has been interested in an expansion of of, of civil liberties um and in the rule of law which is a, a matter of, of considerable importance historically speaking it hasn't always been in favor of democratic government or representative institutions um because of some sort of fear that the people are reactionary and and representative institutions might not be good for liberty but but there has been a desire for the rule of law and civil liberties um then you have social economic liberalism which is concerned generally with, with free markets and, and so on that's tended to be slightly weaker in, in russian history but there have been um believers in free trade and free markets uh and particularly of course in the 1990s when um what you nowadays might be called neoliberals were running the Russian economy and, and wanted to, to liberalize everything on, on Western models. Um, on the whole, though, Russians historically, Russian liberals have tended more to a sort of social liberalism, that's to say, but they, they don't want um, nationalization of the means of production like socialists, but but they're much they would be closer to a social democratic European model in some respects. Um, apart from, of course, the, the, that sort of group who took, took power in the 1990s. And then there's cultural liberalism, and this is, I think, something which is distinct to Russia because cultural liberalism is about turning Russia into what is called a, a normal country, by which is meant a, a Western European or now more broadly Western country. Um, it's it's about it's based on this belief that Russia's fundamental problems are, are cultural ones, um, and that Russia must become European. Or Western, um, 
And therefore, because of this, uh, Russian liberalism becomes closely associated with the idea of, of westernization and westernism more generally. Yeah, so uh, what was the beginnings of Russian liberalism? About what era, what year, you know, century did it begin? Um, historians, again, this kind of thing, historians dispute. <laughs> um, I, I lay out um, various you know, theories on this in, in, in the book. Um, most historians would, would date its origins to the reign of Catherine the Great and, mm -hmm. and would point to instances such as the issuing of um, what Catherine called the Nakaz, or instruction, which was um, a document sort of calling for um, change in, in the way Russia ran and then led to this big legislative commission which was assembled and, and people came from all over and sent in their ideas on, on how to reform Russia. And within this were, were contained some, you might say, liberal ideas and you you get coming in the reign of Afrin, Catherine the Great, at least early on before she gets very conservative and clamps down on all this stuff, but you get ideas of, of Freemasonry um, coming in, which brought with them ideas of the inherent dignity of the human being, for instance, and concepts of natural law begin begin to creep into Russia in this period. But it's a very gradual process, right? So you, you can't say like liberalism arrived in, in the reign of Catherine the Great. You, you just get um, a gradual building up of some of these concepts, which which gain more and more um, adherence over time, at least in, in intellectual circles. Um, Liberalism as a mo political movement, though, doesn't really come into being until at least the 1860s and, and perhaps even a, a little later. Um, it's, it's only um, after the period of, of great reforms and the emancipation of the serfs that you start getting um, a liberal press and, and um, a liberal civil society and um, actual people coming together to communally, collectively press for liberal reform. Um, and, and even then, it's, it's, it's arguably not really until around 1890 or so um, that you know, this acquires any large scale. So um, liberal ideas begin to creep in around 1790 or so, but liberal movement uh, as such takes a lot longer. And with uh, Catherine, it was probably her conversations with Voltaire and uh, other uh, Diderot and uh, trying to yeah, get so all that stuff. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, just as a side note, just thinking about her change from the liberal time to more conservative would you know, coincide with the rebellion of Pugachev. And I mean, I wonder if he was part of this Russian liberalism or it was just a reaction to you know, what he saw in the countryside, because quite often what we see is, and historically, is the upper crust, and those are the ones who record history, and we don't see very much of the peasants, the serfs, and those people below the nobility. Yes, well, when, when, when one's talking of Russian liberalism, one, one is talking, by and large, actually, of a... Um, an ideology and a movement which is which is restricted to the upper echelons of Russian society, both in um, Imperial Russia and in late Soviet Russia and and, and today, um, liberalism hasn't really ever established very strong roots in in you know what people like sometimes call the, the ordinary people. So among workers and peasants, 
um, in Imperial Russia, there are, are very few people willing to, um, who profess themselves as liberals or, or probably even understood what liberalism was. Um, and insofar as they gave their support to any political movement, it, it tended to, to be towards socialist revolutionary or um, uh, communists of one sort or another, so, uh, socialists, uh, rather, rather than liberals. And, and um, when the liberal parties are established after um, the October Manifesto of, of 1905, and you get the creation of the Cadet Party and, and one or two other um, liberal uh, political organisations, they, they fail really almost completely to, to get any support outside of a quite narrow social circle. Um, primarily, of course, um, people of um, in the professions, you know, academics, doctors, lawyers, you know, that, that, that kind of people. Uh, and much, much the same is, is, is true today, actually, but, but um, support for liberal parties is, I mean, not exclusively, but largely um, restricted to um, sort of intellectuals in, in large cities. Um, you know, particularly nowadays, what are called the creative classes, which would be sort of, you know, um, people who use their, their brains to create things. So, 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 um, IT people and, and journalists and, and artists and, you know, theatre people and that kind of thing would be where you, you, you'd get the most support for, for liberal movements, but, but, but not among, um, not among the, you know, Ivan on the street, probably. So what were the early phases of liberalism in Russia? Uh, you know, going back into the early 19th century and the different kind of circles of liberalism. Well, um, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, liberalism could be associated to a large degree of Westernism. So it's when you start getting this, um, you know, Slavophile Westernized divide in, um, again, among quite narrow intellectual circles in the 1840s, um, you get um, certain um, intellectuals who are you know promoting the idea of what you might call a historical determinist idea that all societies are marching in the same direction but the rule there are certain laws to history so you can see this is all coming out of um positivism and and um modern scientific rationalism right uh, and that these laws of history um point you know towards the sort of institutions which exist in western europe Right. Towards France and England in, in, in particular, one might say, right? And that Russia, therefore, is destined to go in the same direction. So you get people like historian Timofey Granovsky, who taught at, uh, in, in Moscow, um, and um, Konstantin Kavin, in, um, another, who was also taught in Moscow for a while and, and was briefly um, a tutor to the then heir to the throne. Um, Grand Duke Nikolai Alexandrovich, who, who died quite young and, and never became um, emperor, um, and you know, Kavanin, for instance, you know, wrote a wrote a, an essay basically laying out in a, in a model largely on on Hegel's idea that uh, history is a process of the gradual expansion of liberty, which finds its expression in the modern state, right. And that this is a process which Russia was undergoing perhaps rather later than Europeans, but that didn't mean Russia was copying Europeans. It just meant that um, they were a little bit further behind on the same process, but the end point was the same. 
right, which would be a um, modern state with substantial civil liberties um, in which people enjoyed a lot, uh, 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 in which, you know, individual freedom finally was able to find its expression and um, what Kavadin called the principle of personality would come into being. So you, you might argue that people aren't necessarily persons in Russian philosophy. A person is something something rather more, right? And and the aim is to turn people into persons so that they are really fulfilling all their potential and becoming what they could be. And that requires a liberal society. It requires freedom. Okay. So according to Kavalin, the, 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 the story of history is the gradual revelation of the principle of personality, which has happened in the West and will now happen in Russia. So, so that, that's the kind of thinking which is coming through in the 18, 1840s, 1850s, um, and then becomes quite influential in terms of the, you might say, historical determinist view of, of later liberals in, in, in imperial Russia. Yeah, that would uh, explain a little bit about the anarchist movement. It was something that uh, my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, uh, taught a class in anarchism, especially in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, papers like uh, Chernyshevsky, uh, Kropotkin, and the like, uh, Bakunin, and talking about how they wanted to have a very different type of freedom for the individual, uh, you know, far beyond what most of the Russian uh, liberals would have thought about. Which brings me to uh, the how did the reactionary policies of people like Nicholas I and Alexander III help or hinder the liberalism movement? Um, that's that's an interesting question because. I mean, it has been argued that although Nicholas I was, you know, um, very conservative, nonetheless, he in some ways laid the foundations for a, a more liberal Russia because, among other things, it, it was um, Nicholas was very interested in law. And you get a, you get a massive expansion of legal education, education under Nicholas I. In fact, it's really only under Nicholas I that you first um, you get the first law schools in Russia and, and, and people's people um start being taught concepts of, of natural law um as well and um this prepares a, a whole new generation of, of people who consider um the rule of law to be fundamental right so in this sense um insofar as the russian liberalism is about the rule of law um it's been argued that its foundations were laid under uh, nicholas the first um uh, under um alexander the third um liberals on the one hand, um, found it um, very difficult to operate because liberals were tended to be uh, concentrated in the work of the institutions set up under Alexander II. So that was to say uh, the Zemsa, which was sort of local councils in the countryside and um, also municipal councils known as Dumas. And um, the liberals um, invested themselves in working in these institutions to, as it were, start building a liberal society from the bottom up. Uh, and then they they ran into uh, problems with a centralizing bureaucracy, which didn't want these institutions to have too much authority. I mean, it, it's a common sort of thing. So uh, local local governments will want to run the schools their own way, and central government wants to run the schools its way. And then you have a conflict, and, and the central state and the liberals ran into um, big fights, basically which made the uh, liberals uh, very upset and constricted what they could do. 
but at the same time, it actually played an important role in, in coalescing them as a, as a um, political movement. So it's really under Alexander III and then into the reign of, beginnings of the reign of Nicholas II, but you begin to get this creation of a liberal movement because these uh, liberals working in the Zemsa and the Duma are getting increasingly frustrated with the central state and they start thinking, well, maybe we should work together, the Zemsa from this place and the Zemsa from that place, and we should come together and form national bodies, which we can use to to lobby and pressure the government for change. So in that sense, it, it provides an impetus for the creation of, of move, moving liberalism from beyond being an ideology and into being a political movement. Yeah, thank you for those uh, interesting uh, insights into Nicholas and Alexander, because when we look at the standard textbooks on Russian history and many of the histories, they tend to view him only as being reactionary and trying to uh, put a, what should you say, blanket on any liberal thoughts, whereas mm-hmm. actually you point out that they may have just begun this concept of liberalism, and especially with Nicholas, that was something that I had not known about before after all these years. So that was interesting. Uh, <clears throat> now, the next one is, what is the relationship between the Bolsheviks and the liberalism movement? Uh, in the beginnings and then under Soviet rule? Well, obviously, Bolsheviks never had any any truck with liberals. <laughs> uh, liberals were always uh, just as much their en- enemy as the Tsarist state was. The liberals, on the other hand, had um, what in retrospect might be considered a, a very naive view that, that um, socialists um, were really on the same team. They were mistaken. They were too, they were too extreme. But basically, you know, that their heart was in the right place and, and that they um, they were allies in the struggle against the autocracy. And the liberals, you know, in essence, because they, they lacked support themselves among workers and peasants, were happy to use socialists of various types, not just Bolsheviks, but also, um, you know, Mensheviks, uh, socialist revolutionaries, whoever. Um, as sort of their foot soldiers who would um, put pressure through violent action on the government and force the government to carry out liberal reform. And, and, and I think the liberals sort of had in mind that, you know, once the, the extremists had, had pushed the government into liberal reform, then, you know, they, the liberals would, would be able to, to, to take over and um, that then they could stop. And, and they were, their, their argument was that, the extremism was a product of the lack of liberty. So that if liberty was granted, the extremism would go away, right? So you could use the extremists to gain the liberty, at which point the extremism would would essentially vanish. Um, Now, of course, in practice, this this turned out to be a a horribly naive and and, and mistaken um, understanding because um, in 1917, of course, after the March Revolution, you know, all, all restrictions are, are swept away. You you finally get your liberty, but the extremism does not does not disappear. <laughs> uh, and of course, in the end, the having um, you know repeatedly un, under um, in the last decade of the Tsarist regime, um, the Tsarist state said, "Look, we'll, we'll we will help we'll." Prime Minister Stalipin, for instance, said, look, we'll, we'll, we'll legalise the cadet party, we'll even let you into a government, but in return you've got to condemn revolutionary terrorism. And the Liberals simply refused to do it. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, in the end, of course, they, they, they paid a very heavy price for, for that. Yeah, I think of, uh, you know, Kerensky uh, in response to the Kornilov affair, giving the Bolsheviks, you know, letting them free from the uh, prisons and then arming them with this naive thought that they would support the provisional government <laughs> and help. And so that naivete was something that was very apparent in historical yeah. actions that they committed. And uh, so, you know, it's something that uh, a lot of people, the conservatives, uh, the czarist conservatives, just blame the liberals for being so naive and not realizing mm-hmm. that the yes. uh, Bolsheviks... Were- and and, and many, many liberals realize, not all, but many liberals then realized of course once once things had gone wrong they they um turned almost 180 degrees during the civil war and 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 said well actually okay all that democracy was a bad idea (laughs) what we need is a dictator Uh, and um they became fervent supporters of of military dictatorship um thereafter um so um that their position um changed considerably and, and and even even in in the 1920s and 30s when they were in exile some of them were were not unsympathetic to the sort of dictatorships right wing dictatorships of uh, which, which which took over in parts of western europe because they regarded that as at least preferable to bolshevism um, and again they had a slightly naive attitude to what what you know fascism and so on actually involved um but they some of them were at least not unsympathetic at least initially to to mussolini even hitler for a short while um, and to Franco, because um, uh, they had decided that all this democratism was probably not, not very good for liberty, and and that democracy and liberalism, as traditionally understood, didn't actually defend liberty very well. In part because, um, and you get a you get a religious turn in liberal thought in, in in emigration, where people start saying, "Well, the real problem with liberalism, if we we've understood it, is it's." It's all about giving people freedom, but never and no one ever stops to think what what for what what's the purpose of this freedom, right? And, and if it doesn't serve some higher purpose, then you know what what it, it's not only useless but dangerous, and it needs to be founded in in some deeper liberalism needs to be founded in some deeper spiritual values. So you get what you might call a conservative Christian liberalism um which comes into being in, in that period more yeah, i've actually met a number number of people who had that point of view who when they came out of russia backed hitler backed mm-hmm. Mussolini and franco and i've met many of them in places like southern france and in new york city after they immigrated and then they went from being very liberal to being very conservative and especially within the church mm-hmm. so they began to see that purpose and they abandoned their old liberal ideas for the very reasons that you mentioned. I met dozens of people like that. So finally, uh, after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union, how did Russian liberalism show itself under Boris Yeltsin and then fade away under Putin, if indeed it actually has? Um, Well, in in the Yeltsin era, there there were several strands of, of, of liberal thought, but um, some of which were in opposition, so that would be the Yablika Party and, and Grigory Levinsky and people like that who, who call themselves social liberals, and they were not um, desperately keen on shock therapy and um, 
Yeltsin's attack on the the, the, the Russian parliament and, and things like that. Although they were reformers and they wanted to liberalize economy, they, they wanted to do it in a in a, a, a more organized and gradual way, which had more social guarantees. Um, and they were opposed to what they saw as a sort of authoritarian turn being taken under Yeltsin. Um, but they were in opposition. The, the liberals who um, who actually ran the country um, on and off under Yeltsin were of a more radical variety, probably the most radical variety of Russian liberalism that there's ever been. And um, having abandoned their belief in um, market socialism and the idea that you could have socialism with a human face, they 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 looked for an alternative model and, and picked up pretty much lock, stock, and barrel with a hundred percent fervor what was regarded as the most progressive model currently available in what were seen as the most successful countries in the world, um, which was basically Reaganite, Thatcherite, um, free market economics. So perhaps if this collapse of the Soviet Union had come at a different time, they'd have picked up a different model. But as it was, the the, the model which was seen at the time as being, you know, the most successful, the most progressive Western model was uh, Thatcherite, free market economics. And, and they took that and attempted to um, put it down in Russia um, as best they could in, in the circumstances. Um, and oddly though, they perhaps had retained a certain Marxist, they've sort of portrayed what you might call the um, hints of their Marxist upbringing in the Soviet Union, and they they remained historical determinists, just as so. So under Marx, you, Marxism, you're taught that like all history is moving towards this predetermined end, which is communism. Um, they just changed the they just changed the the, the end from Marxism to 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 Western liberalism, um, but remain convinced that there were rules of history, there were iron laws of economics, which applied everywhere. And it didn't matter if you were United Kingdom or Russia or Argentina, the laws of economics and of social development were the same everywhere. And that therefore all you needed to do was to liberalize the economy, which was the substruct, you might say the substructure in Marxist terms, and then all the superstructure of a new culture and institutions and everything else would would spontaneously arise. The, the, the free hand of the market would, would um mysteriously producer, right? Um, as a result, very little attention was given to what you might call the institutional underpinnings of a, of a liberal society. Uh, and um, not much thought was given to how um, how a free market economy might operate in, in a society of an absence of the rule of law, for instance, right? Um, and the result was, of course, some achievements. I mean, it, it if you look at Russia now and you compare it to the 1980s, it's clearly a much wealthier country and um, it has a more dynamic uh, economy than it did, which is, of course, due to the fact that, you know, um, it's now largely, though not entirely, based on uh, market lines. Right. So so in that sense, you can say the Yeltsin reformers did achieve something, but it did so, of course, at an enormous short term, medium term cost, which was a massive social upheaval which led to uh, great poverty, um, demographic collapse, uh, collapsing um, 
life expectancy, massive corruption, crime, uh, violence, and, and so on and so forth. And the result has been largely to discredit liberalism in the eyes of a large bulk of the, the Russian population who associate liberalism with that period and with the negative aspects of that period um, exclusively, right? Um, and that is a, a legacy which hangs over liberalism to this day and they're going to struggle ever to get rid of. You then add on, as time has gone on, the increasing tensions between Russia and the West, and that has further helped to discredit liberalism, um, both among the people as a whole, but also in the eyes of the state. Um, and a turning point here was perhaps the, the NATO's bombing of Kosovo in 1999. Um, Unfortunately, this is where the interview ended due to my internet crashing. Well, as you can hear, Professor Robinson had some incredible insights into the topic of Russian liberalism and Russian history. If you want to learn more, you can purchase his book from Cornell University Press. I've posted a link in the description of this episode, which you can find on any podcatcher you use. Join me next time when we continue our series on the history of the Volga and its relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union. So, until then, Dasidanya y spasiba zavinyamanya.